Father, we ask that you would uh, gently but uh, very deeply and powerfully pour the Holy Spirit upon us at this time. Pour the Holy Spirit down upon us and deep within us uh, that your word, uh, your gospel, your grace uh, might come ever deeper into the center of who we are. Father, we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us as Savior and Lord at an ever deeper level of who we are. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. I was, uh, I was raised in a Christian home, uh, but I was not one of those Christian kids who um, naturally liked church. In fact, probably if uh, you were able to go back in time and bring some of my long-suffering Sunday school teachers and to find out that I'd become a minister, I think they would have been the Irish word would be gobsmacked. Um, probably if uh, those Sunday school teachers were getting together and discussing those most likely to live uh, to be a pastor or a missionary or something, I would not have been on that list. And um, as I got a bit older, I had a hard time uh, with Christianity. Uh, and part of the uh, problem I had with the Christian faith was that I just didn't like a lot of the cultural stuff that went along with it. Um, now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting to be close to Ancient of Days, and it's hard for people like younger to understand the world. But in the Baptist type of church that I grew up in, I thought that if I was to become a Christian, I had to dress a certain way, had to have my hair cut a certain way, I had to listen to a certain type of music, I couldn't listen to a whole pile of other things and, and watch TV. I never had any interest in dancing, by the way, but that's something I'll have to learn in heaven. Um, because we'll probably do a lot of dancing in heaven. But, I, I, you know, I, that wasn't something I'm particularly drawn to. But I just, music, everything, the type of literature, there seemed like there was this Baptist Christian culture, and real Christians had to like all of that stuff, and I didn't like any of it. I liked different types of music, different ways of dress, and, and so I had a hard time at all thinking that Christianity could be for me. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but some things transpired that ended up making me realize that I could be a Christian and and dress different and do a whole pile of different things, and, and the Lord appeared to me and I became a Christian. Um, I, I mention this because it's a very similar problem that I have sometimes when I talk with some of my Muslim or Jewish uh, friends in particular, but just generally when I talk to people, also for people that are raised in the Catholic school system. Um, they try to figure out what type of Christian I am, and I have a hard time finding categories to talk to them because you see, like I have I, all the Muslims that I know are people who basically have rejected most of the Muslim faith and live a very secular life. And for them, like a devout Muslim, like, well, like if you're a male and you're a devout Muslim, you start to grow a beard and you start to wear certain types of clothes and you start to to do a whole pile of very particular. Muslim things. That's what a devout, serious Muslim does, and these secular Muslims don't want anything to do with it. And when I talk to my Jewish friends and I try to describe where I am, well, from their point of view, if you're a very serious Jewish person, well, once again, the men will and the women will start to dress a very particular way, and 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 they they've rejected that. They don't want to have any of that. And it would be the same actually for Hindus and Buddhists, and for those in who've grown up in the Catholic school system, like real Christians are. are priests. Uh, like if you're really serious, you become a priest or you become a monk or you become a nun or something like that. And they're not interested in that. So they, they, I have a hard time trying to describe what the gospel is, what Christianity is and who I am and where I all fit 
given the fact that there's all these preconceptions, religious preconceptions, about what it means to be a real Christian, a serious Christian. The Bible text that we're going to look at today actually is spectacularly helpful in helping us to think through this issue, not in terms of how we maybe communicate to our our friends, but at least for us, to help us to understand, and, and if you're here just curious, it's a very, very, very helpful text to understand how the gospel is different and what the gospel does in terms of how it shapes you and how it doesn't. So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21, that would be very, very helpful. John chapter 21, and um, just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny, in so many churches uh, and so many Christians, when you meet them, they talk about parts of the Bible as if it's just like a quote, uh, but it's not. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I just finished watching a documentary. It was a very good documentary. We, we really enjoyed it, The Dawn Wall, and it tells a story. It tells the story of this fellow, Tommy Caldwell, and and what he was like growing up, and what led him to have this obsession to climb a particular rock face. And there's a, there's a story. It goes back and forth about what's happening in his life, what drives him, and, and how, it, how it all ends. And if I just came in and just gave you a quote from a bit of it, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Because you have to sort of know the whole story. It's the same here with John's Gospel. He's writing a story. He tells you the story of Jesus, the biography of Jesus, in a story form. And when you do that, you realize all sorts of different things about it. So what's just happened, as I just said, he's, John is an eyewitness. Uh, he's written this eyewitness biography while other eyewitnesses were around. And he's talked to us about how Jesus died. And he talked about how the, Jesus was embalmed and how he was entombed and how the tomb was empty and the grave clothes were left behind and how he appeared to Mary and then how he appeared to 10 of the disciples and then how he appeared to the disciples plus Thomas and maybe some others. And that's what we just looked at. That's what's just before this. And there's a very important bit that's just before this that I just have to summarize for you, or you don't understand the shocking nature of this. Because I can tell you this, there have been lots of trees that have been put to death because of this chapter, these verses that we're looking at. Uh, because for many, many scholars and many Christians, this is a problem text. Uh, and you don't understand it unless you know what's just gone on before that. And what's just gone on before this is that when uh, Jesus sees, uh, shows himself alive to the disciples, um, then he, he gives these four things. He, he gives them a message which they're to proclaim. And the message which they are to proclaim is that uh, there is a way. Jesus has now done something so that human beings will no longer be at enmity, let's fighting, or opposed to God, but Jesus has done something to make peace with God. Not that God had to make peace with us. He's always been loving, but that we might be at peace with him. And Jesus has now done that by his life and death and resurrection. Jesus has done what human beings can't do. He has opened a door for us to be at peace with God, that he will be our God, that we could walk with him, that he would be our father, that uh, we are in his, our father's world and we can talk to him. And he gives us this message that we have to proclaim. And then the second thing he does is he says, uh, you've got to actually go. Not only do I give you a message, you've got to go and tell people about it. You don't just sort of wait until people come to you. You need to figure out ways to go and tell them. And then the third thing he does, he says, um, so you have the message, you have the mission. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them. So they have the power to do to proclaim the message and to go. And then the fourth thing he does is he says, this is really important. Like people's eternal destiny hangs upon this. If 
people die without hearing this, or they, they hear it and they reject it, it means that they will be forever at enmity with God. If they receive it, it means they begin to have peace with God that begins right now and will go on for all eternity. This is very, very, very important. You've got to do it. And then John, and then Jesus says, people who believe in me without having actually seen me, you're blessed. He says over all of us who are Christians, you're blessed. And then John says, by the way, I wrote this whole book so you'll understand who Jesus is and, and you'll believe him and trust him. And now that can leave us with a bit of, if the gospel just ended right there, we'd say, well, how do, how do we live? Like, what do we do? And so John now sort of gives us a little bit of an implication of all this big message, and that's what happens right now. This is where the story continues. It's John chapter 21, verse 1, and here's how it continues. It's very surprising. It's so surprising that, as I said, lots of trees have been cut down to make paper for scholars and pastors to write about it because they see it as a great problem, right? Very important. Go off and do it. Chapter uh, 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Just sort of pause. Um, In the New Testament, you can get a little bit confused. There's three different ways of referring to the same body of water. Uh, this, by the way, is very common. If you've grown up in a rural area, that might be the way the rural people refer to something. It might be something that the government refers to it. There might be something that tourists call it. And, and, and just reflected in how the Gospels are written. So the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and Lake Gennesaret are all the same body of water. Okay? So just to read it again, Sea of Galilee is more familiar to us. So after this, verse 1, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret, or Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of Jesus' disciples were together, seven guys. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, believe it or not, this has caused lots of angst. And the reason is, well, first of all, there's many, many scholars who believe that this is actually out of place, that um, that this should have actually been whoever was copying the book, they mixed things up, and it should really be earlier in the story, and it somehow is a mistake. And, and the reason they think that is they say to themselves, good grief, Jesus has just appeared to them. He's done it several times. He's told them that they have to go, they have to proclaim this message, and these guys are fishing Like, are they stupid? Well, they can't be that stupid. They can't be that dumb. I know you're not supposed to say stupid, right? Sorry, parents, if you have young kids here, you're not supposed to say stupid. Just time out. I shouldn't have done Anyway, they're dumb, clueless, whatever you want to say. They're fishing. doesn't make any sense. And so they, they try to figure out how to get around this particular problem. Said some scholars say that it's just a mistake in the copy. And by the way, there's zero evidence that it's in the wrong order. All of the ancient manuscripts show the, the gospel written in this particular. Zero evidence that it's in the wrong order. And pastors will talk about why it is that they're not in Jerusalem, why it is that they're not praying, they're not singing praise songs, they're not studying the Bible, they're not making a plan to evangelize the world, they're not doing any of these things, they're fishing. And it's a problem. And, uh, and, uh, and the, there's another thing which is going on. And by the way, part of the reason that this is a problem, that people view it as a problem, is... Um,
Well, you see, it's a little bit like what I said at the beginning of the sermon. You see, because real Christians go to a Baptist church. Those of you who didn't go to a Baptist church back then, sucks to be you. But real Christians went to a Baptist church. Real Christians didn't listen to choirs, soloists, and gospel quartets were particularly what real Christians listened to. And real Christians dressed a certain way, and real Christians had their hair cut a certain way, and real Christians did lots of religious stuff all of the time, nothing secular. And so a lot of pastors and scholars take this over to the text. Jesus has just given them this great commission, and here they're fishing. Like, that's not what real Christians do. Now, we're going to look at this text. There's more. You have to read the rest of the story. But there's another thing, actually, here, which is really important. And I'm, I'm going to just take a moment to talk about it. There's a little bit of a class bias in these comments as well. As you know, throughout all of Christian history, there's always a bit of a problem of thinking that upper middle class are a bit more holy than working class. We're more polished. I'm not upper middle class. But middle class, you know, more than, 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 than the working class, you know, we have better people skills, you know, we know how to eat better, we have better taste in music and literature and all of that type of stuff. And there's just this subtle way that we think that these things that make no difference to God whatsoever somehow are connected to being spiritual, being more godly. Here's the thing. A couple of years ago, quite a few years ago now, I listened to a podcast, and the podcast was by an executive from Walmart. And the executive in Walmart was talking to a group of other executives and high-level advertising people. And one of the things he said is that Walmart is not for any of you in this room. We at Walmart, we don't care about a single one in this room. Not one. We don't care if a single one of you ever come to our store. Why? Walmart is designed to attract people who live paycheck to paycheck. Everything in Walmart is designed to meet the needs of people who live paycheck to paycheck. You in the room, you don't live paycheck to paycheck. We don't care about you. (laughs) But you know what? Most of North America lives paycheck to paycheck, and we'll make enough money reaching most of them. The early disciples lived paycheck to paycheck. They were not upper class. They were not independently wealthy. Peter went fishing because he needed money. And he needed money not because he was sinful, but because he lived paycheck to paycheck. In fact, out of all the original 12 disciples, the only one who might not have had to live paycheck to paycheck was Matthew. But after Matthew gave up his occupation, he also now would have to have been living paycheck to paycheck. And the reason Peter goes fishing, and he goes fishing at night, is because if you want to make money from fishing, you fish at night so that as the day begins, people can go and buy your fresh fish. That's why you do it. He was making some money. If he was alive today, he'd not be shopping at Nordstrom's, he'd be shopping at Walmart. He wouldn't be eating at the Fauna restaurant on Bank Street. He'd be eating at McDonald's or Subway. That's his social class. And to think that he's doing something sinful by working is partially a reflection, an unconscious social class bias that often slips into churches. Let me tell you, 
God doesn't love people who live in a mansion in Manatic any more than he, li- than he loves somebody who's living in subsidized housing. He doesn't. It's a problem. If you're in the military, he doesn't love generals more than he loves privates. <laughs> he loves people. So, so here we have this situation. Like, what's, what's going on? How is Jesus going to respond to the fact that uh, these guys have been going, uh, they're going fishing? Well, let's see. Verse 4, the story continues. So just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Just sort of pause here. Uh, the translation there is very literal, but it's actually not very helpful. Um, in, in, in the sense that it, it's a little bit like if I, if, if uh, you see a, a guy uh, and he sees some other guys out in a boat, he might say, boys, how's it going? Or lads, how's it do- going? Right? It's just a term of affection. It'd be like saying, hey, boys, how's the work going today? And they'd say something good. And that's what he's really saying. He's saying, boys, how's it going? So um, read verse 5 again. So Jesus said to them, boys or lads, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side, the other side of the boat, and you will find some. Now just pause here for a second. And this is something that most of you don't know. You would not believe how many people use this text as a proof text to say, the reason your church isn't growing, the reason you're not making more money, the reason you're not having better success in evangelism, the reason you don't have all these other things is you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. So go to my 1-800 number, my web page, sign up, give me your credit card information. I'll give you the techniques so you can fish on the right side of the boat. Okay, next time you read that, Time out. This is not a proof text to sell your stuff. The Bible is never a proof text for you to make lots of money with your brilliant idea. It's not. Never. Ever. It's one of the ways that people who say they believe the Bible act as if they don't believe the Bible at all. It's actually a violation of the commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain, actually. So I hope there's no guest here who has a 1-800 number who's used this. If you, well, you know what? I'm glad you heard this, what I said, because I know I'm right on this. And a moment's reflection will tell you, the Bible wasn't written so you can make money off your idea. It wasn't written for that at all, ever. Anyway, back to the story. Got you, you mixed up. We'll go back to, uh, to verse uh, 6. He said to them, Jesus said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some fish. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. (laughs) And the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. Now, just a, a couple of things here. Believe it, as you can well imagine, this has caused lots of problems as well. And some of you are probably wondering, why is it that uh, they don't rape, are not able to recognize Jesus? Like, isn't this a contradiction? Uh, if you just read the gospel, uh, Jesus has appeared to Mary. He's appeared to the ten of the disciples. He's appeared to eleven disciples and maybe some others. And if you know the other things in the gospels, he's appeared to others. And here they don't recognize him. It would be a little bit like this. I know if you're a guest here, you don't know who Andrew and Lisa are. 
But for those of us who know, like, who know Andrew and Lisa and what they look like, okay, it, and if, if you've ever helped at coffee, you know there's a little tiny kitchen just about over there, a little tiny, tiny kitchen, not much bigger than a closet. And if two of you went into the, that kitchen and one of you came out and said to me, oh, I saw Andrew in the kitchen all by himself, and the other one said, no, no, I saw Lisa in the kitchen all by herself, you would wonder what's going on. Nobody would confuse Andrew with Lisa. It's never going to happen in a million, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe in a million years. I don't know. They won't live. Nobody will confuse them. You know, one is this tall, one is this tall. <laughs> Male and female, different color, different boy. Like, nobody will confuse them, right? So if one of, if two of you went in and said, no, I saw Andrew in this little tiny room, and the other one said, no, no, it was Lisa, you'd go, there's something wrong. Like, Somebody's making it up. And so, so we, we take this assumption because why we understand what people look like and how perception works with human beings. But here's the problem we have. How much do any of us know about resurrected bodies? How many of us have a direct day-by-day experience with resurrected bodies? If you put up your hand, I don't believe you. The answer is we have zero knowledge of resurrected bodies. The only knowledge we have of resurrected bodies is what we find by reading the eyewitness accounts. And all of the eyewitness accounts seem to say that you can't just observe Jesus after his resurrection the same way you can observe Andrew or Lisa or me. It seems as if for we see, I have fallen, I'm a fallen human being and I'm mortal. And I know that I can observe other people and I can just look and I can see them. But it seems as if from the records that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really is physical, as we're going to see in a moment. He eats fish and all of that type of stuff. He really is alive. He really has defeated death. But you cannot observe Jesus and recognize him unless he wills it. And that's what seems to be most of the New Testament accounts all seem to say that. And I don't understand why scholars have such a problem with it. It only makes, you can only really have a problem if, if you think you know a lot about resurrected bodies, and, and we don't. Jesus has to will it. And that's what happens. In fact, if you think, if you, if you look at it, this isn't just George saying this. Look up, uh, if you put, go back to verse 1 of chapter 21. Look at this. The Bible, you see, the Bible often, if you read the Bible carefully, it often helps you to understand what's going on. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. He uses the word revealed twice. If you want to just skip down now to to verse 14, I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not. Verse 14 says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And the word, the original language word revealed can sometimes just mean appear, But the fundamental meaning is makes understood and visible what cannot be understood or seen. That God reveals himself. We can't see God by ourselves. He has to reveal himself. We can't know what God is thinking. He has to reveal it. It would just be the same thing as as any human being. You don't know what they're thinking. If if all if I asked all of you right now to, to, to just tell me what I'm thinking in my head right now, Probably none of you would be able to tell me. 
but I was picturing the little Baptist church I grew up in. I had to reveal that to you. And that's the word here. Three times at the beginning and the end of the story, Jesus reveals himself. He makes visible or clear, understood what they could not know by their own power. But we still have to get around this whole thing about, are the disciples just dumb? Have they, are they rebellious? Are they acting in a way that is in complete defiance of Jesus? Does Jesus do this miracle so he could say, okay, goofballs, I gave you the instructions, you weren't doing them, and that's why you got zero fish, and I have to come up a second time and give you 153 big fish to understand you got to listen to me and do what I say, so get your butts somewhere else, get doing what I told you. Is that what? No, let's see what happens. Verse 9. Right? They get to shore with all the fish. Verse 9. When they got out of the, on, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. So the fish is cooking and there's some fresh bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, I'm going to unpack it with some points to help you, but here's the main thing. If you look at this text, there's no word of condemnation. Is there not one word of condemnation? Jesus didn't say you got it wrong. That what John has done very helpfully is after this very important message which went on earlier, which is that you're blessed if you believe in Jesus, you're, you have an obligation to go and, and let people know that Jesus has provided the means by which you as a human being can now be at peace with God, no longer at enmity. He can be your God. He can be your heavenly Father. He, he, you can start to understand his love for you, and you can walk with him and with Jesus. You can learn about the existence of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power and be open to it and and you have this important message, and, and, and John here gives this very, very helpful pause in terms of what it means in terms we have to live. He does not condemn them for anything they've done. And in fact, more than that, he blesses what they've done, and he blesses their presence. So let's just unpack that with the, the last few minutes. If you could put up the first point, that would be very helpful. Remember that the gospel is proclaimed to deliver you from religion, not to make you more religious. Remember that the gospel is proclaimed to deliver you from religion, not to make you more religious. You see, my mistake, and I don't know how I got it, and probably if I went back in time to, to my, the Baptist church I grew up in, it might very well be that the minister was all the time speaking against it, but somehow or another I didn't get it. I was dumb. I was a slow learner. But I sort of made the mistake that what a real Christian is, is a real Christian is both somebody who's given their life to Jesus, but is also a Baptist, also dresses a certain way, also likes a certain type of music, also has a certain type of political beliefs, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what a real Christian is. You, you can't just actually, you just can't actually put your faith in Jesus. You've got to have that other stuff too. That's what religion is. It's self-righteous. 
You see, it's not enough just to depend. See, the gospel message is that Jesus does everything to make you right with him. Absolutely everything with nothing left over. Every accusation against you, every claim against you, he deals with it. Your need to appear perfect before God, you're clothed with his righteousness. You don't say, okay, Father, so thankful that Jesus died to take away my sins, and I know I can't appear before you naked, so I just want to let you know I wore the right clothes, liked the right music, didn't like certain movies, voted the right way, and I went to a Baptist church, not picking on Baptists, I've just, I was a Baptist, so I'm talking about myself, right? No, 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 no. God the Father would come up to you and say, oh, come on, dear one. He'd want to give me a hug in heaven. He said, you are so silly. All that other stuff doesn't matter. In fact, it's, it's dumb. Like, you're clothed with my son's righteousness. That's what you're clothed with. And you see, at the heart of all religion and all spirituality is this idea that I need to make myself clean. I need to make myself acceptable. I can't just touch, trust purely and utterly and completely and massively upon grace. I need to supplement it. And then one of the problems is a lot of us look at people who are religious and what we see, we see phonies. We see hypocrisy. And we see a whole pile of things that don't interest us. And so we reject it. But we're not really rejecting the gospel. The gospel is a message that God has done everything that needs to be done to make you right with himself. He does it because he loves you. He does it knowing you can't do it for yourself. He does it knowing you've turned your back on him and you're at enmity with him. He knows all of this and still he loves you. Still he loves you and did all that is needed for you to be made right with him. Still, he loves you. And the gospel message is to our Jewish friends, you don't stop being Jewish, but you don't have to wear that skull cap. You don't have to, real, real Christians don't have to wrap your arms with certain types of leather and have certain types of, to our Muslim friends, guys, you don't have to grow a beard. You want to grow a beard? That's fine, you know, but you don't have to grow a beard. You don't have to wear that clothes. To Christians, you, you can like different types of music. And it's not the case that a priest is more holy than a a lay person. You you see, because what's undergirding religion is that I'm, me and Sean, and maybe Gary, and almost Jonathan, and almost Daniel, we're the real Christians, the rest of you are at best second rate. Okay, I, I think there's a person here who does a lot of Christian speaking, so you're included with me. We're like up here, but everybody else is second rate, because real Christians make their living from the gospel. Nah, that's what this text is saying. That's not true. God does call certain people to be set aside to make their living from the gospel, but most people are not. And that's what this story so powerfully, powerfully relieves, uh, uh, reveals. But, so, but some of you might say, because okay, all, all you want, then you just have to have faith and then you do whatever you want? Like, is that what the Bible is saying? You just have this private revelation of Jesus And then once you have your private revelation of Jesus, you can just every once in a while sort of have a little zinging conversation with them or a little boast of, woo, there's a bit of spiritual energy. Uh, You just sort of live whatever way you want, do whatever you... No, no, that's that. uh, could you put up the next point? That would be very helpful. Remember that you enter the Jesus way by yourself, but you live the Jesus way with Jesus and others. Uh, You enter the Jesus way 
by yourself, but you live the Jesus way uh, with Jesus and others. You see, one of the things which is at the heart of the gospel is that the gospel is going to restore you to being human. As the gospel grips you and shapes you, it will start to restore you to be human. And what are human beings? On one level, I'm a private guy. I have my own personal experience. None of you actually can ever fully properly enter into my experience. It's my experience. And uh, But on the other hand, you know, you have families, you have workplaces, you have a social life. And, uh, and that's some ways in reflected about what the Christian life is. It's not just that you become a lonely mystic all by yourself or you, you engage on your own particular all-alone religious spiritual quest. No, the Bible is going to restore you to what it means to be human. And that means there's going to be private things like private devotions, but there's also going to be common types of things. That's why Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit invent the church, that we're meant to do life with other Christians. Not in a way that becomes all-consuming, but we're meant to live with others, to pray with others, to celebrate with others, to weep with others, to struggle with others, to help with each other. That's what God intends. So you have to make a personal decision to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. But then you're going to start the gospel itself will start to shape you to want to spend at least some time and some structured and ordered time with other Christians. But um, can you put up the next point? I can't remember what my bridge point was going to be to the next one. Um, remember that the gospel shapes you to be more your true, unique self. That's the type of thing. That's what I meant is the transition. Um, I, I don't want to sound really judgmental about this, but just give me a little tiny bit of grace, like a bit of grace or time. But, but here's the thing. Like, you know, when you're, if you're in Jerusalem and you see a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews all dressed the same, well, I mean, there's like 50 types of them, but those who are in the same type, they're all dressed the same. They almost become like clones. They become indistinguishable from each other. When you see a pile of very devout Muslims, they, they start to look almost identical. It's hard, hard to understand them. If you, if you get a, very, a group of very, very like, you know, religious Catholics or Anglicans and, and you see the priests and, and you'll see that they're all dressed in identical black suits and, and very similar haircuts and, and they, they look like indistinguishable from each other. And it, it's hard to not sort of think. That's what religion does. That's what spirituality does. It, 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 it forces you to, to, to work on externals to, and end up looking the same. But one of the things which is so wonderful about all these stories is that when, Je- when Mary Magdalene meets the resurrected Jesus, she responds one way. When Peter meets the resurrected Jesus, he responds a different way. When John meets the resurrected Jesus, he reacts a different way. It reflects their personality. And Jesus doesn't say, by the way, just time out. Peter gets an A+, Mary Magdalene gets an A-, and John, get off your butt, dude. You only get like a B-. No, he doesn't do that. They're all completely and utterly themselves. Mary, passionate. Just passionate. And public. And Peter... Let's go take that hill. <laughs> and John, 
Let's just think about it for a bit. And those are all fine. And even the different ways the disciples respond to Jesus, when it's just the eleven, the ten of them the first time, they're all glad. They're all giving each other high fives. They're giving Jesus high fives. They're jumping up and down. And in this particular case, here's what this is describing. A group of guys who've worked hard all night, and they're in a beautiful lake. It's the early part of the morning. And they're sitting there, and they have 153 big fish. They made a lot of money from that hard work. And there's a wonderful fire on the beach. Beginning of the day, it's cool. There's some fresh fish being cooked perfectly. Some fresh bread. You're with your buddies. And they're just quiet. You know why? It doesn't get any better than this. Those of you who love the outdoors and love to fish, it doesn't get any better than this. The sweat drying. You're just quiet. And that's good too. That's good too. Jesus doesn't say that's better than the other way. He doesn't say there's one way that you have to behave. He brings out your uniqueness. It's the opposite of religion. And uh, could you put up the next point? So some of you might say, well, is, okay, George, I'm a little bit confused. Is that, I'm like, are you just sort of saying that, okay, you get the gospel, you have this private zinging things with God, and you're just going to make yourself more unique and occasionally you have to hang out with other people and it doesn't really change your life? No, that's not what happens. The gospel changes you. Remember that the gospel shapes you to enjoy simple pleasures Work well in honest labor and enjoy being generous. See, that's one of the things which is so wonderful about that. Like many of us, many people think that if you become a Christian, you have to walk away from simple pleasures. Like real Christians, real Christians just eat steamed kale and quinoa and give all and have no butter on it because butter is sinful and no olive oil. It's just plain and maybe some bread, preferably dry, and the rest of the money goes to the mission field or something. That's what real Christians are like. No, that's not what this text shows. That real Christians never have seconds or thirds. Do you think in this story, if one of the disciples said, Jesus, I'm really famished, could I have seconds? Do you think he'd say, no way, come on. Do you think the fish would taste good? By the way, Anybody who's gone fishing, and it's early morning, fresh fish on the fire, right hot, it's delicious. Can't get better than that. And there's simple pleasures. Jesus dignifies simple pleasures. And he dignifies honest labor. Those of you in private enterprise, Jesus is with you. I mean, what do you do in private enterprise? Like, I'm sure if Shannon was to talk to you, they say at the end of the day, the, the owners of the coffee shop, they caught, they caught, they, they total up their sales. <laughs> you count it. How did they know there were 153 fish? Is it beyond the possibility that either Jesus waited while they counted with a big smile on his face, or he walked over and helped them count? It matters. Honest labor matters. And it's generous what Jesus does to come. And, you know, if you're thinking about what Jesus is like and what God is like, later on today, if you go to a Tim Hortons and you see that 
that person working at Tim Hortons with the ugly clothes and maybe the ugly cap, Jesus did their job for you. He cooked, he prepared, he served. And it's generous. He blesses simple service. He blesses generosity. So will the gospel shape you and change you? Yes, it will, in all sorts of ways that you can't even begin to go. You know, for those of us who are unbelievably fixated about money, and often when we say the gospel changes us, all we think about is sex. It it will make a difference in sex, but you know what? It'll make it other things. For those of you who are unbelievably tight-fisted and worried about money, the gospel will start to make you generous. For those of you who struggle with laziness and think you're entitled, as the gospel grips you, it'll start to make you aware of the fact that honest labor is good. For those of you who are workaholics, the gospel will start to shape you to realize that actually you don't get your identity from your work, that maybe you have to spend some time with Christian friends or with your family. Will the gospel change you? The gospel will change you in all sorts of ways that you can't even begin to imagine, but it will shape you towards generosity, towards honest labor, towards enjoying simple pleasures. That's how the gospel shapes you. And just one final thing before we close. And this is the, one of the things that most hit me. I, I pray for uh, non-Christian friends and family members. If you could put up the final point. And this has just really struck me here this week, and it, it's helped me with my prayer life, and I'm just going to share it with you because it, hopefully it will help you with your prayer life. Pray that Jesus will reveal himself as Savior and Lord to your family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Pray that Jesus will reveal himself as Savior and Lord. That's at the heart of the text. He reveals himself. And it just, you know, I sometimes have a hard time knowing how to pray. I pray that the people come to a saving faith in Jesus. That's a perfectly good thing to pray. I wasn't praying wrong. But I just really struck me. And one of the things I can pray, I almost mentioned some names, is I can just pray, you know, I pray for my grandchildren almost every day. I, I believe it or not, I pray for the future spouses of my grandchildren. <laughs> Even the babies. <laughs> Can't get started on prayer too early. <laughs> and, I, and I pray that they'll, become, they'll come to Jesus. And now I'm going to pray for my kids, my grandkids and their future spouses, that Jesus will reveal himself as Savior and Lord. For the baristas and the people I meet, Lord, will you reveal yourself as Savior and Lord to them? Just want to share that with you to encourage you to take that on as a prayer as well. Please pray, please stand. Just bow our heads in prayer. Father, um, first of all, Father, we just, we can, we are just, I am so grateful. We are so grateful. You, Reveal Jesus to me and to many of us as Savior and Lord, not because we were the smartest or the most holy or um, what. You just, out of love for us, you did that. And, and Father, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that we, you revealed Jesus to us as Savior and Lord, and we received it. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to reveal Jesus as Savior and Lord more and more in every area of our lives, in money, in sexuality, in time, in family, in work, in leisure, in citizenship, in politics, in all of how we think, and all we remember, and all of our imagination, and all of our artistic abilities, that in everything that makes us us, Father, just we ask that you would continue to just be so kind to us and reveal Jesus as Savior and Lord in all areas of our life and deeper and deeper in the center of who we are. 
And Father, I I pray, we pray for those who have not yet come to recognize who Jesus is, that he is their Savior and he is their Lord, that he died for them, that he will restore them to what it means to be human. Father, we ask for our friends and loved ones that you would reveal Jesus as Savior and Lord to them, that they would receive it. And Father, we ask that you'd help us to die, help us to be so gripped with the gospel that we die to all religion. And that it is the gospel that shapes us. Your word shapes us. The Holy Spirit shapes us. Father, help us to die to all religion. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen.